Alpha and Omega, the story we find ourselves in. Chapter 13, Christ's Coming. God's true king arrives. At this point in our journey through God's greater story, we are well aware the story of Christ did not begin with a manger in Bethlehem. Remember that there had been 400 years of silence. Like the 400 years God's people spent in slavery in Egypt longing for deliverance, Ten generations of Israel had lived and died looking for Messiah, but without a message or messenger from God. But all along, God had been setting the stage for Jesus' arrival and ministry. The birth narratives of Jesus are found in three of the four Gospels. John uniquely began from the perspective of eternity and affirmed the divinity of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The Greek term for word is logos, which was a common philosophical term referring to the organizing principle of all reality. John began there because the audience for, which, for whom he was writing would have been aware of that term. But there's more going on here than just making a connection with an audience. Hear the passage again. Does that remind you of another passage in the Bible? In the beginning. John intentionally imitated the rhythms of the first words of Genesis. Why? The physical coming of Christ into the world was the first moment of what would become a whole new world created by God. But it was also the beginning of a new humanity through Christ, who was the new Adam. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14 says. The Christ was both God and man. Matthew 1 and Luke 3 record the genealogies that trace the earthly line of Jesus back to King David, then back to the tribe of Judah, and ultimately to Adam. This connection is very important for two reasons. It shows that Jesus is both the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and the focus of God's redemptive story. And it is another assertion of Jesus' full humanity. So, that's the context. But there's still the wonder that led to that night in Bethlehem. The first voice to sound that of God's long silence was that of an angel, one of his heavenly servant messengers. The archangel Gabriel first appeared to an old priest named Zechariah on an ordinary day to inform him that he and his barren wife Elizabeth would have a son whom they would name John. That boy would serve God as the forerunner announcing the arrival of the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, for whom all Israel had been waiting. We later call him John the Baptizer. The angels next appeared to Mary, the virgin girl who miraculously conceived a baby by the power of the Holy Spirit, and Joseph, her husband, the carpenter. Ordinary and faithful Jews chosen by God to serve as the earthly parents of Jesus. About six months after the encounter with Zechariah, the angel appeared without warning to Mary, who was probably in her mid to late teens, to announce that God had chosen her to be the mother of the Messiah. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
how many threads of God's greater story to this point are in that one greeting? Her response, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel's answer affirmed that this birth would be miraculous and unlike any before or since. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary immediately and without question submitted her life, her future, her body, her reputation to God's plan. She said, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Several weeks later, when Mary visited her relative Elizabeth, it was revealed to the older lady that Mary was carrying the Messiah in her womb. Those two rejoiced over God's mysterious and wonderful ways. Mary's rejoicing begins, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Her prayer is sometimes called the Magnificat, which is Latin for magnifies. But at the same time that the two pregnant ladies were laughing for joy, Joseph was deeply troubled because he had a major problem. He and Mary were betrothed, which is even more formal and binding than engagements in our day. Now, Mary was pregnant before their wedding. Joseph wanted to believe Mary's story about the pregnancy from God, but had no mental or spiritual category to begin to understand that. If Mary was pregnant, that can only mean one thing. She had acted immorally, broken her vows, and according to the law was to be abandoned at best and stoned to death at worst. Joseph loved Mary, and he wanted to protect her from shame or harm, but he also wanted to do the right thing before God, so he decided to divorce her quietly or secretly and just move on with life. And that's when the angel showed up. He said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So that's exactly what Joseph did. The betrothal continued to marriage, but Mary and Joseph had no intimate marital relations until after Jesus was born. During this time, the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus ordered a census of the known world, or at least the world that was under the control of Rome. Details like this don't move the narrative forward, but do confirm the historical accuracy of the claims of Scripture. We know that such a census happened every 14 years in the Roman Empire. Everyone was required to register in person at their ancestral home, which for Joseph was Bethlehem, since he came from the line of King David. Joseph and a very pregnant Mary made their way from Nazareth to Bethlehem, about an 80-mile journey. Contrary to our Christmas cards, the Bible does not say that Mary rode on a donkey. She very well may have walked that entire way while nine months pregnant. When they arrived, the small town was packed with people, and there was no place for them to sleep except in the stable, which may have actually been a small cave tucked behind a home that welcomed travelers. As soon as they arrived, Mary experienced the birth pangs of labor. It was her time. It was time for the birth of Jesus the Christ to Mary in a cave's table in Bethlehem. There was no midwife to assist, no mother to reassure her, no pain medication to comfort her. There was only a carpenter's hand to hold and the help of God. 
the entire scriptural description of this world-changing, history-defining, life-transforming, eternity-shaping event is recorded in less than two verses. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Oddly, just as soon as Jesus arrived, the scene shifts to a hillside outside Bethlehem where some lowly shepherds were the first on earth to hear the Savior's birth announcement and then came to worship the newborn king. Shepherds were just going about their ordinary work, which included guarding the flocks by sleeping with them in the fields at night. Suddenly, an angel appeared to them, perhaps Gabriel again, and the darkness of night was chased away by the brilliant shining of God's glory around them. The angel spoke, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He then gave them directions to go and see this baby for themselves. This is made all the more wonderful when you remember that shepherds were of the lowest social class and usually could not even attend worship at the temple because they were considered ritually unclean. The outcast and forgotten were the first to hear the news of a Savior. That set a tone for Jesus' entire earthly ministry. Then, as they told him that, a multitude of angels covered the sky. Was it dozens, hundreds, thousands maybe? And they sang to give glory to God for the Messiah's arrival. Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to those whom he favors, among those with whom he is pleased. This event, you see, had impact on both heaven and earth. Remember the silence from God? Now an angel choir was celebrating his glory for all to hear because of the babe that was born. After the angel's praise finished and the echo of their song faded back into the quiet night, the shepherds made their way to Bethlehem, found the little family with their newborn son, and told them everything they had seen and heard. We're told Mary pondered all that happened, and the shepherds then went on their way, glorifying and praising God. Now, the childhood of Jesus is sparse in recorded details after the birth narratives. Only three incidents are recorded. First, the dedication of the infant Jesus to God occurred in the temple in Jerusalem when he was just over a month old. Like all good Jewish boys, Jesus was circumcised when he was eight days old in accordance with the law of Moses. A few weeks later, again following the law, the family presented Jesus, their firstborn son, to the Lord and fulfill the purification rites required following the birth of a child. Their sacrifices of two pigeons was what was prescribed for the poorest people in Israel. All this took place at the temple in Jerusalem, which was just a few miles from Bethlehem. While at the temple, they encountered Simeon and Anna, two aged saints of Israel, who had each been faithfully praying for God's Messiah for years, and now greeted the newborn Jesus with joy, Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Savior. He took the baby Jesus in his arms, blessed God, and told God he was ready to die now because his eyes had finally seen the salvation that God had prepared. But he also spoke soberly to Mary, telling her what the Holy Spirit had impressed on his heart, that nobody would be neutral about Jesus, that he would become the standard by which all lives would be measured, and that in the process she would experience deep pain. He said, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, 
so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Anna was in her early 80s and had been praying for Messiah for a lifetime. She began to praise God and tell everyone around that the Messiah had come. Well, the next incident occurred sometime before Jesus turned two years old. Joseph and Mary had gone back north, back home to Nazareth, and began to live the simple life of a laborer and his family. But something else was going on behind the scenes. The worship of the Magi led to Herod's massacre and the flight to Egypt. At some point, wise men or Magi from the east, far outside the borders of the Promised Land, had noticed an unusual astronomical phenomenon, a star shining brighter than anything else in the night sky. Contemporary studies in astronomy confirm that there was an unusual star, a comet, or planetary alignment between 3 BC and 2 AD. Somehow, the God whose heavens tell his glory used the intellect and curiosity of these men who were not of Israel, but most likely of a pagan people, to convince them that this heavenly sign was the announcement of a newborn king. So they calculated and like mariners setting a course by the stars, made their way to Judea. They began to inquire all over Jerusalem about the one who had been born king of the Jews. Word eventually got to King Herod, who grew concerned that there was a rising threat to his own power. He called the Jewish religious leaders in and asked them if they knew anything about this, and they immediately quoted from the prophet Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod instructed the Magi to go to Bethlehem, find the child king, and let him know so he could go and worship him too. The Magi did go to Bethlehem. They found Mary and Joseph and the child in a house, not a stable, which again messes with all our Christmas cards. They knelt in worship and presented three unusual and valuable gifts fit for royalty, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now again, three gifts doesn't mean there were just three magi. There may have been many more or less. But when God warned them in a dream not to go back to Herod after they had worshipped him, they headed back home by a different way. When Herod discovered he had been duped by the wise man, he exploded in a jealous and insecure rage. He had no claim to the throne other than political intrigue and strong-arm tactics. If there was another with a birth claim to the throne, that one simply had to be eliminated. Herod decreed that the military might of the Roman Empire be used to exterminate all the baby boys in that region who were two years old and younger, just like Pharaoh, who had tried to snuff out God's people all those years before. Imagine the heartbreaking grief in so many families. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and warned him to flee to Egypt until Herod had died. So Joseph, Mary, and Jesus moved to Egypt for a brief stay. This fulfilled the prophecies of the Son of God coming out of Egypt. After being told by an angel that Herod had died, Joseph and Mary returned to Judea, but out of caution and fear of Herod's successor, his son, they settled in Nazareth so that Jesus became known as a Nazarene. There's one final glimpse into Jesus' childhood. The boy Jesus engaged with teachers at the temple in Jerusalem. When he was 12 years old at the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus engaged in a dialogue about the law of God that amazed the teachers of Israel. Now, the family had been to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. On the trip home, Mary and Joseph thought Jesus was with others in the group with which they were traveling. He was not. Yes, 
Mary and Joseph lost the Messiah. <laughs> they were already a day's walk toward home when they realized he was missing. It took another day's journey to get back, and then they spent three days searching for him in Jerusalem. That's a total of five days searching for the missing Son of God. When they finally found him, Jesus was sitting in the temple listening to and asking questions of the teachers of the law. When Mary and Joseph questioned why he would choose to cause them such anguish, Jesus simply said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Jesus, not so subtly, but respectfully, reminded them that he was very aware of why he was here and who his father was. The final bit of information about Jesus' childhood described how he lived as a son submitted to his parents and how he developed as a person. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In other words, he developed like an ordinary human boy, physically, socially, relationally, intellectually, and spiritually. Jesus was raised in a solid Jewish home like a good Jewish boy to love God and his law, to take his place in his family with his stepbrothers, to labor with integrity as an apprentice to his father, the carpenter, and to share life and serve his community in the small town of Nazareth. Nobody in Jesus' ordinary world saw what was coming next.